the first sermon, we talked about how uh, focusing on the second coming of Christ ought to lead to sanctification, not speculation. Uh, You may recall that we talked about how it shouldn't lead us to try to figure out times and dates uh, and places as much as it should lead us to uh, know and love Christ more. And uh, so we talked about that. Secondly, we talked about the rapture in, uh, in the second sermon. And we talked about how the rapture confronts unbelievers uh, but comforts believers. And I think many, many people were surprised at the comforting nature of uh, the rapture. And uh, we talked about that. And then last Sunday, we talked about the Great Tribulation. Let me show you this, um, uh, this chart that I showed you last uh, Sunday. And again, this is on my blog, too. I put that up last Sunday. Uh, uh, we all uh, know about Christ's first coming. He was born. He died. Let's uh, just keep trucking right on through there. Resurrection and ascension. Then uh, the church was established at Pentecost. And then we have about 2,000 years between the green and the yellow dot uh, where Israel was reestablished as a nation. Uh, Critically important to understanding end times is Israel uh, as a nation. In my understanding of the uh, end times, I believe that the rapture is the next thing to take place. But let's pause there for a moment and let me share with you. I only have one copy of this, so uh, you can check it out in the media center or buy one. But if you would like to see other views that I've talked about, uh, this is three views of the rapture, pre-trib, pre-wrath, or post-tribulation. This will be available in the lobby as you leave. And there are wonderful folks who uh, disagree with me. And uh, so that uh, will be available as you leave. I believe the next thing that will happen is the rapture. Uh, Then the tribulation, a period of seven years, and what our, where our sermon is going to be uh, today is in uh, the midpoint of the tribulation. And then I believe Christ's second coming. Uh, but if you hold to a post-trib view of the uh, rapture, meaning you believe Jesus will come after the rapture, that blue mark, you would take uh, the rapture and Christ's second coming and put that all as one event. Then the battle of Armageddon, which gets loads of attention, uh, sheep, goats, uh, sheep and goats judgment. There are two judgments, actually, uh, you'll see uh, uh, that are going to take place. Uh, but the millennium begins, which is Christ's reign on earth for a thousand years after that judgment, and then the white throne judgment, and then a new heaven and a new earth. And so our sermon series will walk through everything on that uh, timeline there uh, as we go through, and all of that is available on iTunes. You can check it out. And so today we come to the uh, study of the Antichrist. And uh, the uh, term doesn't occur uh, incredibly often in Scripture, but it uh, does occur in the writings of John, actually not in the book of the Revelation. John wrote this book as well, but also he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote uh, the Gospel of John. So to his credit, you have... uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of the Revelation, the gospel of John. In uh, uh, the uh, epistles of John, he refers to the Antichrist uh, there. Uh, Someone has said, or it is often said, that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. 
That imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. As a matter of fact, all morning long, uh, I've been asked why I'm wearing a jacket. Um, This is probably the only church where when the pastor wears a jacket, people get worried. Um, But I've been asked, why am I wearing a jacket? And my answer is, I just want to be like Gary Suttles. So uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Uh, that's uh, the saying that has uh, that many of you many of you know. Well, the Antichrist, everything he does imitates the true Christ. Everything he does. I want to say to you this morning that uh, Satan. Uh, we just need to go on notice by saying that Satan has no original ideas. He copies everything. He is the great plagiarist of the day. He has no original ideas. You must remember that Satan was once in heaven, and when God bounced him out, all he has done since then is to copy, uh, to attempt to copy what God does in true form, he attempts to do in false form. And so the Antichrist, who isn't Satan, but the Antichrist, that's what he does too. Uh, He imitates Christ. And as you are taking notes this morning, you will discover three ways in which the Antichrist, there are more, but three primary ways from Revelation 13, 1 through 10, that the Antichrist imitates Christ, which ultimately points more to Jesus. It ultimately points us more to seeing who Jesus really is. When you see the negative, it often... Uh, displays the positive. And that's what's happening here. And so uh, we learn from the Antichrist that, uh, well, we know Jesus is a marvel and the Antichrist will be too. You see this beast rising out of the sea. Uh, The beast has ten horns and seven heads. He is a a, a fascinating-looking creature. And this reference to the beast here, I believe, and most scholars believe that the beast and the Antichrist are one and the same. Uh, We'll talk about the second beast of Revelation uh, 13, uh, 11 and following in a moment and in a full sermon next week. But uh, what we have here is Satan is standing on the shore of the sea. We discover that from Revelation 12, Satan is standing on the shore of the sea and the Antichrist, the beast, rises up out of the sea. Now, we can make much of the sea. We know this is the Mediterranean Sea. We know that John is in, uh, on ex, in, uh, is exiled on an island as he writes this revelation that he receives. Uh, why the sea? Uh, why is he coming up out of the sea? Well, if you were an Israelite, you really didn't care for uh, the sea that much. Um, Probably the main reason is that along about 1200 B.C., uh, there was a group of people who trekked from Greece. Uh, The kingdom of Greece fell, and a group of people trekked from Greece across the Mediterranean Sea. They settled in southern Palestine, and those people were called the P-E-L-E-S-T, the Pelest, all right? If you're in my Old Testament class, we'll cover this. They're called the Pelest, and they became known as the Philistines. 
And the Philistines were the bitter enemies of Israel. As a matter of fact, Palestine, you may wonder, where does that, the, the name Palestine come from? It comes from the name Philistine. And so the Philistines were bitter enemies of Israel, and they were known as blessed or sea peoples. Uh, the sea was not a favorable place. We know that also from David's writings. David says that God forgives us totally of our sins, doesn't he? And he says he cast them as far as the east is from the west. And also, he says, he cast them into the depths of the what? The sea, never to be remembered against us anymore. So don't forget that the Antichrist is rising out of the depths of the sea. And the sea, according to a Jew, contained all the sins that they had ever committed. God has just cast them into the sea. The sea, there's 400 miles of coastline along uh, uh, Palestine, 400 miles. And it has made Israel subject to attack. For years and years, all of Israel's history. And so this beast rises out of the sea. He has ten horns. He has seven heads. All right, so he has ten horns and seven heads. I'm not going to go into detail as to what they mean, but you'll discover today that we will go back and forth between Revelation and the book of Daniel. Why? Because Daniel, in his day, as a teenager, and, uh, or he was older by then, but as a teenager, he went into exile. And I was thinking while I was sitting about three or four rows from the back singing this morning, and I was looking around, and to my right uh, is a group of teenagers, and to my left is a group of teenagers, or right in front of me is a group of teenagers, to my left is a group of teenagers. I love that. I love seeing these students front and center. Absolutely love it. Uh, You sit here engaged. It's awesome. It's wonderful. If you fall asleep, I'll spit on you. So uh, I just love seeing you up here. Here is Daniel as a young man taken into exile, but the culture doesn't get him. He, He works his way through the Babylonian culture, and Daniel has these visions. God gives him these visions, both of Israel's immediate future and of a future that is still yet to be. And so, Dan, so, so John sees this beast with ten horns and seven heads. In Daniel 7, the four beasts and the ten kings portray nations who attack Israel. And so you have uh, ten horns and... Um, uh, seven heads here, and uh, you have a similar picture in the book of Daniel. Uh, now, there is something interesting that happens here. Uh, the, the beast is unified with the dragon who is unified with the second beast of the uh, second part of Revelation 13, and together they form what is called the unholy trinity. It is the unholy trinity. It is the trinity of Satan, the trinity of the Antichrist, which is the first beast, and the trinity of the false prophet, which is the second beast. Revelation 16, 13 gives us a little bit of insight. Uh, uh, John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, you have all three spoken of separately in one passage, three unclean spirits like frogs. All right, so here you have the unholy trinity. What is Satan trying to do here? He, he's trying to imitate the real deal. 
He's trying to imitate the Trinity. Let me say something to you. Let me pause here. Anybody who doubts the Trinity but sees the vision of John and believes all of Scripture shouldn't doubt the Trinity anymore. Because Satan himself believes in the Trinity so much so that he tries to imitate it. He tries to imitate God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit by by himself, by the Antichrist, and by the false prophet whom we will encounter next week. Then verse 2, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like bears, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and a great authority. All right, so you have these animals, uh, all of which this beast kind of resembles. We will go back to Daniel. Chapter 7, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. I'll read just a parts of that. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Notice this. The first, like a lion, and had eagle's wings. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard. After this, I looked, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. What John sees in his vision is what Daniel saw in his. And so you see Daniel predicting the appearance of the Antichrist, and you see John seeing the appearance of the Antichrist. And Satan delegates power to the beast, to the Antichrist. Satan steps back knowing this, that he with his history, will never be able to gain the influence that he would if he himself were a wielding power in this last three and a half years of the tribulation. Nobody's going to follow Satan. So what does he do? Satan, instead of having people follow him, sets up this Antichrist. And how does he do it? Well, we discover something that at first sight may seem a little grotesque to us. But listen, one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Right? He has uh, seven heads, but one of them has a mortal wound. What do mortal wounds do? They kill people. But this mortal wound was healed. Healed, And this miracle proved to be a marvel so that all of the uh, earth marveled at this beast because he recovered from a mortal wound. Who does that sound like? Jesus Christ. The marvel of Jesus Christ is that he died on the cross, received a mortal wound, and three days later rose from the dead. Paul said, if that never happened, we need to shut uh, uh, the doors and go home. If we are not people of the resurrection, we have no faith. And so what will the Antichrist do? He will seek to replicate in some way, in some sense, the miracle of dying and coming back to life. There will be some way in which the Antichrist will seek 
to duplicate or replicate the greatest act of Christianity, which is the resurrection of Jesus. We serve a risen Savior. Amen? We serve a Jesus. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and he's coming back. And so Satan knows that he cannot enter the scene, so he sends this beast with a mortal wound, this Antichrist with a mortal wound who will be a marvel because everyone will look at him and think, how could he be revived? And the earth will be deceived and follow him. Now, where did he get this mortal wound? Back up to Revelation chapter 12, just the chapter before, and uh, we're going to dive down a little deep for a moment. So hang with me. Verse 17, then the dragon, who is Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So you have a picture of Satan, the dragon, making war with the woman. Who is that? This shoots us all the way back to the book of Genesis. In case you never thought that all of Scripture has a ribbon that weaves its way in and out of the entire Bible, Genesis 3.15 is called the first good news. All right, Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation. And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. You get to Genesis 3, and what happens in Genesis 3? It all unravels. Adam and Eve blow it, right? Adam and Eve fall in Genesis 3. They blow it. They eat the forbidden fruit, and sin enters into the world in a profound way. It's the reason you and I struggle with sin today, because of what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. Was God surprised by that? No. Was God ready for this unfolding, uh, uh, this turn of events? Yes. Genesis 3, 15, here is what Jesus, here is what God said. I will put enmity between you. He's cursing the serpent and the who? The woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, so God is talking to the serpent, saying, I'm going to establish this relationship of enmity between you and the woman. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. All right, if if you're killing a snake and you bruise its head, or some translations render it crushed, What does it do to the snake? It kills it. If a snake bites you on the heel, what does it do to you? It hurts you, but not necessarily kills you. On the cross, Satan bit Jesus on the heel. Ultimately, Jesus will crush Satan on the head. That's what begins to unfold in Revelation 12, verse 17. Satan begins to make war with the offspring of the woman. Predicted in Genesis 3, it's now ultimately unfolding in Revelation 12. And what we discover here 
then is that this Antichrist who rises is the agent of Satan to detract attention uh, from himself and pull everybody in. The temporary healing of the mortal wound produced marvel and wonder. Jesus was permanently raised from the dead. Uh, Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus is a marvel, just as the Antichrist will be. Try to rid yourself of all the weirdness of the heads and the horns and and, and all the body features and and be sure that the Antichrist, which will be a real human being, uh, will, will be incredibly appealing. He will have winsome, marvelous, wonderful ways about him that will draw in people everywhere. Number two, Jesus is worshipped. The Antichrist will be too. It says here they worship the dragon, that's Satan, because of the beast and worship the beast too. Just as today we worship God through Jesus and worship Jesus too. This mimicry is fascinating, isn't it? Now, this ought to give credibility to the truth that Jesus is God. Many people struggle with this. But here the Antichrist tries to mimic his own worship. He acknowledges that Jesus is worshipped and he ought to be worshipped too. Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, speaking of Jesus, says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is worthy of our worship. We sing about and to Jesus because he is God. Now notice this, don't miss it, because you will see this divine passive repeated again and again, was given, was given, was given. When you see that in Revelation 13, who's given this Antichrist his power? God is. God is. When it seems that God is not in control, he totally is. God is the one who is giving the Antichrist his power. Could I pause here for a moment to say that some of you, perhaps many of you, walked in here this morning thinking, my life is out of control. It may be out of your control, but it is never out of God's. He sees the the end from the beginning. You and I aren't capable of. We cannot see the end from the beginning. The Antichrist is deluded himself. He thinks this power that he has is ultimate, and this power that he has is fantastic, but it is given to him by God. He has a leash, and on the other end of that leash is God who holds it. What does he do? He utters haughty and blasphemous words, first of all against God, Daniel eleven thirty six. We're back to there. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. 
He mocks God himself. He blasphemes God himself. He has no inhibitions. He is godless. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, which is another turn for the Antichrist, is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He will set himself up to be worshipped as God himself. And because of this miraculous resuscitation, because of this mortal wound that was made to be well, people will say in the middle, now we're three and a half years into what we talked about last week, and people will be so deluded that they will say in the middle of that, he's God. We're going to worship him. And they will swarm to him. He will utter haughty and blasphemous words against God, against God's name, which is, uh, could be equivalent to his reputation, and against God's dwelling. And there is the parenthetical, his people in heaven. Let me say for a moment, Because we have a tendency to dive deep into these theological passages and forget the implication for us today. Don't miss that people in heaven are equated to the dwelling place of God. Last night I was called out. This family called me and said their father was dying and he was uncertain of his uh, salvation and would I come and come quickly. He does not attend here. Neither do they. They just happen to know me from years gone by. And so I leave and I head to sit by the bedside of this man who is completely coherent. And he looks at me and he begins to hit me with questions. Much like somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer and wants to know all the ramifications of a diagnosis would look at a medical doctor and and just, just assume that that medical doctor has every possible answer. This man who grips my hand, eyes locked on me, begins to ask me riveting questions about the end of life, what will happen to him, is there hope for him, what has Christ done possibly for him, and we go through this exchange there quickly, rapidly, as he rapid fires questions to me in that moment. And his big concern He had heard errant things from preachers of all people, but errant things on what happens to someone after they die, on how to know Christ as your Savior. And so last night, I was able to share with him the assurance, the possibility of every single believer being sure of his salvation. But he somehow confused these judgments on the end here to assume that if you had come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is Then God's going to pull you out of heaven after all of that and judge you. And something could have happened between death and that judgment and change your status and you could still go to hell. Well, that's just weird and stupid. I mean, how in the world do you arrive at that is insane. And so I begin to try to help him make some sense of all of this. 
what this passage here says is that all of your loved ones who have died are still the dwelling place of God. I was listening to NPR yesterday. I enjoy listening to it. Sometimes it makes me mad. Sometimes it makes me glad. But that's where I get my news. And so I'm driving down the road to Nebo Crossing yesterday morning, listening to NPR. They're interviewing a professor who discovered, he discovered scientifically that your soul lives on after death. Well, duh. I wish he'd have called me up. It had saved about 30 years of his career. He could have focused on something else that could have impact in the field of medicine. But he said, I've discovered that at least for five or six hours that your soul lives on after death. And they were all in the interview in awe of this discovery. The reality that when you die, please hear me, saints of God, when you die, your, your soul is the dwelling place of God. That ought to bring you great comfort. You see, we have, we have uh, gone around this like a bad traffic jam on the interstate. And we've said, ooh, I'm not going to go into Revelation. I'll get hung up there. and When I do, I'll be there forever. No, we ought to trek through it. I say we, myself included, because it's to me been the proverbial uh, bad traffic jam. But there are great comforting words here just tucked away amongst all of this prophecy, aren't there? Uh, And the Antichrist will mock every saint who's died. He utters blasphemies against God, against God's reputation on earth, and against God's people in heaven. What does that say to you? Please hear me. I want you to hear me well on this because we have a tendency to prop open the door and give Satan a foothold. Satan hates you. Please hear me, teenager. Please hear me. His desire is to ruin and wreck your life. His desire is to destroy you. His desire is to strip away every semblance of God in your life. His desire is to strip away everything in your life. Everything. And he will not do it in the most overt way. This ought to show us that. He masquerades as an angel of light. At the end of time, he'll send an antichrist. What do you think he's doing now? John says antichrist, little s, little a. He says they're in the world now. They are. They are. Say, you know, I'm not talking about leprechauns in, in, in March, all right? You know, that you looking for, that's not what I'm talking about. What am I talking about? The world system, the world's values, some, some common things that uh, most people fall to. Church, they exist now, and we buy into them sometimes. Number three, Jesus died for his followers. The Antichrist followers will die for him. Wow. The Antichrist can't pull this off. He can't die like Jesus. Why? He's intrinsically evil and selfish. He can't get over his selfish, evil ways to give up his life for somebody. Verse 7, it, the Antichrist, was allowed 
to wake war on the saints and to conquer them. Those saints who are alive during the tribulation. What a difficult day. But here's the irony. I have to throw it in. Revelation 12, 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The irony is the Antichrist thinks. Remember, he's cursing all the saints who are in heaven. So let's say that we die before Jesus comes back. We'll be the target of the Antichrist's blasphemous words. But let's say that there are saints, uh, that there are those who come to Christ during the great tribulation. They aren't raptured. Or if you believe the tribulation, that we won't be raptured. It would be the church. But let's say those saints who come to Christ during the great tribulation, then the Antichrist will make war against them. And we'll discover next week the second beast and the mark of the beast. Very, very well-known passage. We'll look at that next week. But the irony is that those saints who go to their martyrdom death will destroy the Antichrist by their own death. Now, notice this. It says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 12. Back to Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. What happens then? Is that all those who have not come to faith in Christ during the tribulation will bow down and worship the Antichrist. But it will be short-lived because this is a three and a half year period. Don't miss that. He is allowed to rule for 42 months. At the end of the 42 months, we'll see in Revelation uh, chapter 19 at the end uh, and 20, at the end, uh, actually 20, 7 through 10, his, his, his fate is, de- is he's doomed. His fate is sealed. He is doomed. He will lead his own people to their death by deceiving them of who the real Christ is. That is the very nature of Satan to keep coming after you, coming after you, even though he was mortally wounded and he resuscitated, he was revived. He will keep fighting. I'll share this with you not to scare you, but a few Sunday nights ago, uh, we were having a parenting seminar. We had 60 parents here for this thing. And Abby Taylor, I think she's working in preschool right now, and she attends our second service. Abby is uh, she's just calm. She's just kind of a calm person, evidently, because she walked out those doors, and I was walking over this way, and she looked at me, and she said, Jerry? I said, what? And she said, um, I stepped on a snake in the two- and three-year-old room. Just like that. Her, her voice wasn't pitched high. Uh, she just said that. And so B.G. Gillum was standing right the, uh, over there, and I said, B.G., come with me. And so that night we officially became, we confirmed all the rumors. We are a snake-handling church. So, so B.G. and I head in there, and sure enough, about a three-foot-long black snake is in the two- and three-year-old's room. Thankfully, there were no kids there. And so, uh, so uh, Abby had walked in the door and stepped on its tail. 
when she did it. So it's stretched out. And BG grabs a broom and he pokes that thing and it coils around the broom. And he said, Jerry, open the door and I'm going to throw it out. I'm thinking that thing's flying past me. I'm not very excited about this right now, but I open the door. He flings this black snake out the door, and when he does, the thing turns around immediately, gets up in striking position, and heads for us. I'm like, BG, you got the broom, you know? Do something with the broom. And so he starts swapping this snake with the broom, and he swapped the thing down, and here it come right back again. And he didn't want to kill it because it was a black snake. And I said, well, I understand. I agree. I said, but BG, there are too many kids here. So he slings the thing out toward toward the woods, and he gets a cinder block. And when he does, he takes the cinder block, drops it down in the middle of this snake, cutting it in two. What did it do? Cut in two, got up like that, and came after BG to strike him. That is the picture of Satan here. He will not stop until he is completely destroyed. The Antichrist will not stop until he is completely, in Revelation 27 through 10, destroyed. Please hear me. Please hear me. Some of you are dabbling in sin today. Satan will not stop until that sin has destroyed your life. If there is something that we learn from the Antichrist today, it is this, that he is Satan's agent. And the way he acts and what he does gives full insight into Satan himself. Jesus died for his followers. The Antichrist's followers will ultimately die for him. John says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. What does that mean? It means don't turn a deaf ear to this. It's an old prophet saying, listen up. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must must be slain. John's talking about saints there. Some will die. Some will be taken prisoners. Others will die. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. John says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Who are those? The saints in John's day? Rome was coming fast, incidentally, across the Mediterranean Sea as John was riding. So the saints in John's day, number two, you and me, and number three, the saints in the tribulation. We've got to endure. We've got to hang tough. We can't pretend that we can sit back, relax, and somehow our salvation is just going to work its way out. Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both the will and the work for your good pleasure. And sometimes we have so erred, uh, in a sense, on the side of grace that we think, well, there's nothing I have to do. I've been saved. Jesus has changed me. I'll just sit back, and God's going to work out all these things in my life. No, you'll have to pray. You'll have to memorize some scripture. You'll have to uh, say, God, work these disciplines in me. You can't just ride on God's tailcoat to heaven. There is work that we do. The work doesn't save us, but it is a result of our being saved. And we will not know the end result of much of that work. We must 
settle with that. We must know that we will not know the end result. Good case in point this week. Most of you are aware of the gentleman who died on Tuesday at the work site. So it came to our attention that they needed a meal. And uh, first Wednesday, uh, we just simply received an offer, and his folks were leaving and got almost $700 to provide a meal that they needed by Friday for 150 people. We had taken tables over there. And so on Friday, we delivered food for those folks. But Sandra Bailiff, who prayed, I think, last Sunday or a Sunday before, who speaks Spanish, on Monday night, had gone out into the fields and met some field workers. And she had shared Christ with them. On Monday night, five of those workers, those five of those women, gave their lives to Christ. One of those women who gave her life to Christ is the wife of this man who was killed the very next day. What Sandra said to me, we didn't realize that when we planned the meal on Wednesday. I learned that on Thursday. What Sandra said to me, oh, I hope that she went home to her husband on Monday night and said, could I tell you what happened to me in the field today? And I so hope that on Monday night, her husband said, I'd like to know the same Jesus that you know. We don't know the answer to that, do we? We just don't. But we know that Sandra's obedience on Monday night on at the least prepared this woman to face Tuesday. And that she walked into Tuesday empowered by the Spirit. We know that. And we can only hope for the rest. Why do I say that? John says, endure. Some of you have prayed for your wife or for your husband for years. Endure. Some of you have battled addiction for years. Endure. Some of you have battled physical illness for years. Endure. Some of you have battled emotional pain for years. Endure. You do not know the fruit that will come. That's why John ends with this. It had to look dismal in the great tribulation, did it not? The Antichrist. Everybody on earth is vowing. Those who aren't are dying. But John said, endure. Endure. Let's pray. We'll be done. Father, thank you so much.
that through this passage that is tough to understand that you gave this revelation to John as and um, some of you have asked about uh, we have talked about the different views of the rapture pre-trib pre uh, pre-wrath or mid-trib post-trib uh, we have an excellent resource uh, that has each of those views presented if you you know, want to nerd it up and read some more, here it is. Each of these views is presented, and in addition to those uh, views, uh, all the other guys critique each other. So uh, that's there. It'll be out front as you leave if that interests you. I uh, also uh, want to say this morning before I jump into the sermon, we want to be uh, praying for Debbie Groover. Debbie's father passed away yesterday, and we want to be in prayer for her. On the flip side, we are excited for Dave and Amy Snyder, who had their third child on Tuesday. Caroline Reese was born, and Caroline and, uh, and Amy are doing well. Uh, she has a little bit of jaundice, that's all, so uh, everything else is good. So we're thrilled uh, for Dave and Amy. That's why he, of course, isn't here leading worship today, and we rejoice with them. I want to pull the chart up I had last week, and I know some of you haven't been along for the ride as we're in this series on eschatology, on end times. And uh, as we are in this series, uh, uh, there are some of you that this greatly interests you, and and you just can't wait to get more, and others of you really have never studied it, so you kind of have a a little bit of a standoff um, uh, uh, mentality to it, perhaps. And I just want to say to you this uh, uh, sermon that uh, we're going to have today, you're going to have to pay close attention. It's got some detail in it that can be difficult to grasp. So, you know, mentally uh, lock in, pay close attention, take some notes. If that helps you, sit up straight, uh, that kind of thing. If we, you know, if we have to do a stretch in the middle, we will. Uh, but uh, just, uh, just stay with me here. But let me, uh, uh, let's look at this. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, Kara? Are we ready to roll? Yes, thank you. For uh, Christ's first coming, we all know as when Jesus came and he was uh, crucified and uh, resurrected uh, from the dead. And then he uh, established his church and the uh, church was started at Pentecost. Then between this one and the the yellow one, uh, almost 2,000 years when Israel was reestablished as a nation. And uh, that is... uh, uh, critically important to uh, eschatology, uh, to the study of end times. I think the next uh, event that's going to happen, historical event uh, regarding the end times, uh, will be the rapture. And that will be the taking uh, out of the church when the church is uh, taken out of the earth. And then after uh, the rapture will be a seven-year period known as the tribulation. Uh, That tribulation is described in Revelation chapter 6 through uh, 18. You see the tribulation spelled out there. And our sermon today occurs halfway during the tribulation, about three and a half years in. It's when the events that we will talk about, the Antichrist today, begin to unfold. If you are a post a tribulationist. Do you believe where that blue mark is that the rapture and the second coming will take place at that time and that the church will be here during the tribulation? Uh, but I believe the church will be taken out uh, of the earth at the rapture, then the seven years of tribulation, and then the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. 
Uh, after that, there will be the sheep and goats judgment. So that separates the saved from the lost. And then there will be the thousand-year reign, the millennium that begins. And then one more judgment, the great white throne judgment of the dead and of Satan. And ultimately, we will be together in a new heaven and a new earth. And so what we're going to look at this morning then is that mid-section there, the great tribulation, and look at the, at the Antichrist, whom I call the great imitator. Uh, someone has said, it has been often said, that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And so if that is the case, then the Antichrist is flattering Jesus Christ by who he says he is and what he attempts to do. I hope that through the sermon this morning, you will see that the Antichrist though he would never want to do that, points to Christ. Though he would never want to bring attention to Christ, he does so. And so when he shows up on the scene, which I think will happen uh, uh, in a significant way, halfway through that seven-year period, when he shows up on the scene, he does so in such a way so as to imitate Christ. I remember a few years ago, uh, and most of you probably shop at either Family Dollar or Dollar General at some point. And so we have both in Old Fort. And Old Fort's a big, thriving city, and it needs two of those things. Uh, but at any rate, we do. And so we got our Family Dollar, and uh, the Dollar General was moving in right down the road. Uh, uh, the uh, developer told me that the Dollar General was, uh, store was going to come in right down the road from the Family Dollar. And uh, this, I talked to the real estate guy who was developing it out of Columbia, South Carolina, and I said, why in the world? I mean, this is old Fort. We have a total population in the city of 900 people. Why would we need a, 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 a Dollar General when there's already a Family Dollar? He said, well, Dollar General's practice is to wait till Family Dollar opens, and then they go build one right next to it. All right, invitation is the greatest form of flattery. Evidently, they think that the family dollar's expansion plan works well, so they just follow it. That's what he said. Uh, This is what the Antichrist does. He simply does things that make him look like the true Christ. And so, first of all, we discover that Jesus is a marvel, and the Antichrist will be too. Now, he comes up out of the sea. And uh, that would be uh, the Mediterranean Sea, but he comes up out of the sea. And you may wonder, well, why the sea and what, is, what does it mean? Uh, we ask these questions all the time. What does it mean? Well, let me, uh, I don't know specifics about what it means, but let me tell you about the Israelites and the sea. They don't look at it too fondly. The Israelites do not uh, look at the sea and feel like the sea is a great place. Why? Because in 1200 B.C., in 1200 B.C., there was a group of people who left Greece when Greece fell. They left Greece, came across the Mediterranean Sea, settled in southern Palestine. They were called the P-E-L-E-S-T-S, the Palest, which means sea peoples. And they became known as the Philistines. And the Philistines uh, are where we get our name, Palestine. All right, so they became known as the Philistines. And the Philistines are the bitter enemy of Israel, always have been. All right? And so Israel uh, called these sea peoples who became their bitter enemy. They, they don't care for people of the sea. We know, or the sea itself, we know that David knew this because what did David say about our sins? He said, God has cast them into the what? 
The depths of the sea, never to be remembered against us anymore. The sea has never held good, good connotations for Israel. Just never has. The other reason, 400 miles uh, along the uh, Mediterranean Sea, Israel has constantly had to protect themselves as people have tried to get to the Fertile Crescent, to Mesopotamia, to the Tigris, to the Euphrates, all of that they have to go through Israel. And so the sea has never been good. And so the beast rises up out of the sea. Now, while he is rising up out of the sea, the beast, which is the Antichrist, while he is rising up out of the sea, Satan, who is called the dragon, is standing on the shore watching all of this happen. So Satan is standing on the shore. The beast rises up out of the sea. He is pictured with ten horns and seven heads. And we'll look at that just a little bit, not loads. But what we discover here is that Satan delegates his power to the beast. And he gives the beast his power. Now we'll discover in verses 11 and following of Revelation 13, a third person, the false prophet. So uh, the, the second beast, but the false prophet. So here we have Satan who is the dragon. We have the first beast who is the Antichrist. We have the second beast who is the false prophet, and the three of them together form the Trinity. Isn't that interesting? It's called the unholy Trinity. Who do you think they're trying to copy? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want to pause here and go on notice by saying something this morning, that Satan, Satan is the ultimate plagiarist. He has no new ideas. He was cast out of heaven. He saw what God did in heaven. He spends his existence trying to replicate and duplicate God. That's what he tries to do. He tries to sell you on things that will make you feel in ways that will feel good for a little bit, but not as God can forever. Satan is the ultimate copyist. He is the ultimate plagiarist. He is the ultimate copycat. And we see it play out here in the Great Tribulation. So during this time period, this beast rises out of the sea. Revelation 16, 13 shows us this unholy trinity. John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, That's the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Here you have this mimicry, this imitation of the Trinity. Look at verse 2. At verse 2, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's feet. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power, his throne, and great authority. What is fascinating, there are a couple of fascinating things here. One is that God gives John this vision of what's going to happen still yet future. But way back, God gave Daniel the same vision. And Daniel saw then what John sees now. So Daniel saw then what John is privy to now, which still has yet to be. So let me give you a passage from Daniel. Let me pause to say that my entire sermon manuscript will be on my blog as soon as the service is over. So you can go if you don't get all of this and review. Uh, But Daniel 7, 3 through 7. Daniel says, Four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. 
The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. Behold, another beast, the second one like a bear. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard. And after this, I looked and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. What Daniel saw, John saw. What John saw, Daniel saw. These dual witnesses give give credibility to this vision. And so Satan, the dragon, hands off his power to the beast who is the Antichrist. Why would he do that? Because Satan knows that if he comes storming on the scene himself, guess what? If Satan himself comes storming on the scene, nobody's going to listen to him. But he posits this Antichrist. Now, something had happened uh, with this Antichrist Now, what happened here? So this beast has multiple heads, one of which has a mortal wound. What does a mortal wound do? Kills. And so it has a mortal wound, but this wound is revived. And when this wound is revived, everybody marvels at this beast and thinks, wow, check this out. This guy was dead, and he is alive. Or he was down and he is up. He was out, but now he is in. And so all of the world marvels at this beast. What is that like? The crux and the center of Christianity is that there is a Christ who died and three days later rose again. And Paul says if the crucifixion and the resurrection are not in the center of Christianity, we have no faith. If Jesus died but he did not raise, we have no faith. And so the beast, the Antichrist, wanting to mimic Christ, also has a mortal wound. His mortal wound is also, also healed. And the whole world marvels at this man who is capable of such. Now, the question comes, where does this mortal wound come from? Where did he receive the mortal wound? Go back to Revelation 12, verse 17. In Revelation 12, 17, we see then the dragon. So the dragon is Satan, became furious with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All right, so what we have in Revelation 12, let me review for you just to make sure this makes sense. You have in the middle of the tribulation, you have the Antichrist who rises. He's known as the beast in this passage. The Antichrist rises out of the sea while Satan stands on the seashore, the dragon, and watches. As the Antichrist is rising out of the sea, we discover earlier that Satan the dragon is going to make war with the woman. But the question comes, who is she? And what does that mean? And who are her offspring? I want you to know this morning, I want you to get this, that Scripture from beginning to end is all connected. Who is this woman? Go all the way back to Genesis 3. If you go back to Genesis 3, we know in Genesis 1 and 2, God created it, and it was all good. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell, and it went bad. It went sour. Look at verse 15. Jesus, God is cursing, cursing the serpent. He cursed Adam. He cursed Eve. What does he say? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What does that mean? 
All right, you've got to track with me. This is the tough, toughest part in the sermon. What does this mean when, when God in Genesis 3 says this? All right, if you're trying to kill a snake and you crush its head, will the snake die? Yes. But if the snake bites you on the heel, will you necessarily die? No. You could recover from that. What Jesus was predicting in Genesis 3.15 is that Satan, Satan would strike Jesus on the heel. That would be the cross. Jesus would crush Satan on the head. That would be the resurrection. And ultimately, at the end of all things, Satan will be bound, cast into the lake of fire, ultimately destroyed. Genesis 3.15, early on, as soon as Adam and Eve fell, predicted Jesus and Jesus' ultimate defeat of Satan. And here we see the beginning of the end for him. He takes on the woman one more time, her offspring one more time, in a battle that he will not win. But he is himself deluded and thinks he will. And so in the meantime, the Antichrist is his front man. The Antichrist is this man who rises to power, who has great marvel about him. People are enthralled by him. He he will be a real human being who rises to power, whom, whom Satan will use as his front man. Meanwhile, in the background, this cosmic war is being raged. Notice what happens. Notice what happens. The temporary healing of the mortal womb brings great applause. But what we know from Romans 6, 9 is we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Jesus said, uh, Paul said, death no longer has dominion over him. The Antichrist will die. Jesus died once and for all. So Jesus is a marvel, but the Antichrist will be too. Number two, Jesus will be worshipped. Jesus is worshipped, but so will the Antichrist be. What happens? They worship the dragon because of the beast, Scripture says here uh, in, in verse 4. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So they worship the dragon because of the beast, and they worship the beast or the Antichrist as well. Now, I want to say this. For people who struggle with uh, the reality that Jesus is God, the very fact that the Antichrist seeks to be worshipped means that he himself believes that Jesus ought to be worshipped. Otherwise, he wouldn't set himself up to be worshipped. He's simply imitating uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then we have something developing here. All through this passage it says the Antichrist was given. The Antichrist was given. It's called the divine passive. What does that mean? It means that he is on a leash. Only God allows him the power that he has. God has given him this power. God has given him this ability. He doesn't have it in and of himself. We call that the sovereignty of God. What does he do? He utters haughty and blasphemous words against God. 
He utters haughty and blasphemous words against God. Secondly, he utters blasphemous words against God's name, God's reputation. Thirdly, he does it against God's dwelling. Who is God's dwelling? It's a parenthetical expression here that gives us great insight. God's people in heaven. I want to pause here for a moment. Because we have these caveats, these little phrases in here that give us great insight into who God is and into who his people are. Yesterday, I'm on my way to Nebo Crossing to uh, help with the build, and I listen to NPR. I just like listening to NPR and don't always agree, but that's where I get my news. So I'm listening to NPR, and as I'm doing, uh, so I'm uh, listening to this interview with this doctor. And this doctor who has spent 30 years studying what happens after people die made a profound discovery. He said, we have discovered that the soul of somebody actually lives on after their death at least five hours. Well, really? You know, I I was driving down the road thinking, hey, man, if you'd have called me up, you could have spent your last 30 years studying something else. But he said, we have discovered this, and I don't know how he's figured it out. I caught the tail end of the conversation, the interview, but that's what he said, that the soul of man lives for at least five hours after someone dies. Just last night, I received a phone call from a family, and they said, our father is dying. He is uncertain of his salvation. He is scared to death. Would you come visit? Would you come meet with him? And he thinks he's dying tonight. He's quite ill. So I get in my Jeep, I trek over, and I sit down across from this 83-year-old man who holds my hand, he grasps my hand, and he looks at me as if somebody were looking at a doctor who's been diagnosed with cancer. And so they look at the oncologist, and they ask that oncologist everything in the book to figure out what their prognosis is. This man looked at me, and he began to hit me. He was totally coherent, hit me with questions. Jerry, what happens here? What happens there? What about this? And what about that? This tiny little phrase right here says the Antichrist is blaspheming the name of God, blaspheming God himself, the name of God, and God's dwelling place. And then there's a parenthesis, John says, the saints who are in heaven. What does that mean? That means that you, when you come to faith in Christ, are God's dwelling place now. And when you die, guess what you still are? A living soul and you are God's dwelling place, then. That for you, you never cease to be the temple of God. It's just tucked away right here in the middle of all of this. You see, I want you to hear me on this. Though we're trying to wrap our minds around this, and I know it's hard. I don't apologize for that, by the way. We need to think that Jesus really is a marvel. And while the Antichrist does his dead-level best to show anything but Christ, he can't do anything but do what? Show who Christ really is. And Jesus really is worshipped. And while the Antichrist does everything in his power to be worshipped, he can't do anything but what? Show how Jesus really is. Even in the middle of all of this, we discover some very comforting words about all of our loved ones who knew Christ and have gone on to be with him. God dwells in them even now. And the Antichrist, acknowledging that, curses them too, blasphemes them too. Thirdly, we discover that Jesus died for his followers. 
but the Antichrist followers will die for him. So, Jerry, what do you mean? Well, the Antichrist is allowed to make war on the saints, those who have come to faith in Christ during the Great Tribulation, and to conquer them. You would say, well, how in the world is that fair? How in the world is that right? Look at Revelation 12, verse 11. What the Antichrist doesn't know is that the very thing he does ends up being his own ruin. Revelation 12, 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. When he wages war on the saints and kills them, ultimately their death and the blood of Jesus for whom they are given their lives ends up conquering him. It's the great irony. He's totally deluded. Don't miss that. The blood of the Lamb. Look at verse 8 of 13, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. That's the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Those saints in the tribulation are protected by the blood of Jesus. He saves them. He protects them. Though they may lose their life, they don't lose their soul. Those who follow the Antichrist lose everything. As a matter of fact, in the much acclaimed famous passage, which is the next half of Revelation 13, where we learn about the mark of the beast, we discover that people are convinced to trade temporary comfort for eternal reward. And guess what? Satan has nothing new up his sleeve, folks. We're still tempted that way today, aren't we? There are those of you in here who are teenagers and you would rather temporarily be popular at high school than to permanently walk with the Lord. There are college students who sit here and you would rather temporarily have the approval of that guy than to permanently have the approval of Christ. That's what the Antichrist does. Oh, he offers great, great, attractive, front man for Satan stuff. This book of life, what made it possible? The death and resurrection of Jesus. There's no doubt. For all those who follow the Antichrist, it is only a book of death. But Satan doesn't go down without a fight. That's what the Great Tribulation shows us. The ultimate battle of Armageddon shows us. A few weeks ago, we had a uh, parenting seminar here on a Sunday night. There were about 60 parents here. And uh, Abby Taylor, I think Abby may be in the service, but uh, Abby was taking care of the, the kids that, that evening, one of the child care workers, and she was totally calm. She walks out of this door, 
and she looks at me and she says, Jerry, I walked into the two and three year old room and stepped on a snake. I said, what? She said, yeah. And so BG Gillum was across the way. I said, BG, come, come with me. And so BG and I head in there and sure enough, we walked into the room and there's a three foot black snake in the two and three year old room. Don't know how it got in there, but it did. So it's there and, and BG grabs a broom and we officially confirmed all the rumors. We became a snake handling church that night. So BG grabs the broom and he poked the snake. And when he did, that snake coiled up on the broom. And he said, now, Jerry, I'm going to sling it out the door. You open the door. I'm thinking, do I want to be holding this door that this snake flies by? And I said, all right, BG, aim well. And so I open the door and he slings that snake out. And when he does, that snake lands and gets in striking position and tries to come back at us. So BG's, you know, swatting the snake with the broom, and he doesn't want to kill it because it's a black snake. And He's swatting it with the broom. And it comes back, and I said, BG, there are too many kids around here are going to have to kill this thing. And so he takes a cinder block, kind of gruesome. He takes a cinder block, drops it right in the middle of the snake, cuts it in two, and even when the snake is cut in two, he rears his head in striking position trying to get BG. The cross did that to Satan. The empty tomb did that to Satan. But he's still in striking position. He's still attacking. He's still doing his business. He, he still hates saints. But ultimately, he'll be defeated. Ultimately, he will be destroyed. Jesus died for his followers. The Antichrist followers will die for him. Well, what should we do? John says, if you have an ear, then let him hear. This old prophet saying, listen up. Don't ignore this. Listen to these words of wisdom. What does John say? If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. What does John mean by that? Please hear me. We are thrilled when we talk about the sovereignty of God over the Antichrist, aren't we? God sovereignly gives the Antichrist his power. But sometimes we're not so thrilled when we talk about the sovereignty of God over us. What John is saying is that he, all, he gives power to the Antichrist. He lets the Antichrist uh, have his leash, but he also is sovereignly in control of all those who will die who are saints. And if you are, are one of those he is saying to his listeners, then you will be killed. Matthew 24 says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. This is Jesus talking and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. John says, here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Who are those? Let me give you three groups. The saints of John's day. Why? Because as he was riding on this island off of the Mediterranean, in the Mediterranean Sea, Rome was, Rome was coming through the waters at that time. So saints of John's day could have read this and said, wow, we've got to endure Nero, the saints of our day, and then the saints who will be in the tribulation. This is written for all three groups. 
endure. Endure. Endurance is something we don't talk about much. We're a grace-saturated church, and I'm glad we ought to be. But just because, please hear me, just because God has saved us by his grace, and he has, and called us and covered us with his blood, doesn't mean that we will not have to work. Not to be saved. But there are things that you and I will endure. There are some of you who sit here right now, and you know Christ, and still after knowing Christ, you battle addiction. What would John say to you? Battle. There are some of you who sit here, and you were treated in horrendous ways as a child, as a teenager, and that haunts your memory even now. What would John say to you? Endure. Some of you went through a divorce that wasn't of your doing. Yet you hear the broken record that it is. What does John say to you? Endure. Some of you hear Satan's record player that has a way of re winding back to failures and kind of stopping there. And you hear again and again and again, well, if you hadn't done this, dot, dot, dot. If you had only, why did you? What, what does John say to you? Endure. Endure. What will work for the saints in the tribulation just by greater to lesser argument will work for us. Right? Sandra Bailiff is sitting in the service. Many of you are aware, Sandra was baptized a couple weeks ago. Many of you are aware that uh, this week, tragically, a 40-some-year-old man was killed down at West Junior High School working. He's a Hispanic man who lives in our neighborhood right across the road. On Wednesday night, it came to our attention that they needed a meal for 150 people. And so our first Wednesday folks graciously gave $700 to provide that meal. People brought desserts and drinks for that. And On Friday, we trekked over and delivered the the stuff to them. But on Monday night, Sandra was in the fields with, Sandra speaks Spanish, and she was in the fields with uh, women who work in the tomato fields, mostly around here. There are other crops, but mostly tomato fields. But, but she was in the fields with those women on Monday evening, and she shared the gospel. And Monday night, five of those women Gave their lives to Christ. What we didn't know on Wednesday is that one of those women who gave her life to Christ was this man's wife. When Sandra shared that with us, we had two or three thoughts. Number one, wow, God, how you provided. 
you gave her the spirit because it was the very next day that her husband was killed. But secondly, what Sandra said is, I so hope she went home and said, could I tell you what happened to me in the field tonight? And I so hope that he looked at her and said, could I know the same Jesus that you know? Why do I share this now? Is that to let you know that Sandra had no idea Monday night the significance of those five women who gave their lives to Christ. We endure because we don't know what good, if any, will come out of our service, do we? But we trust the sovereign God who has, who will have the Antichrist on a leash, who knows the beginning from the end. That's called faith. Do you know what I love? I love how if the Antichrist were alive today, he could be, but if he were alive today and he would want this message to be all about him, it just can't be. It's all about the true Christ. And that's why you endure. We're going to close today simply by my, by my praying a prayer for you. A prayer of endurance. Next week we'll look at the false prophet, the mark of the beast, and look at how this deluded kingdom, unholy trinity continues to develop, and God remains unshaken by it all. Would you bow your heads? Father, I bow before you now and I thank you that you sent your son Jesus Christ who looked anything but marvelous on the cross but three days later marvel of all marvels miracle of all miracles he was raised from the dead father we bow before you who could lean over to him at any point and send him for us And acknowledge that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And Jesus, we will worship you 
with nail-scarred hands and pierced feet because you gave your life for us. Put our names in your book. I pray for all things that come against you, Christ, to be revealed in our lives. I pray for people in this room who need to endure. Father, if if your command is for those in the middle of the great tribulation when the sea is turning to blood and sea life is dying and water, fresh water is made bitter, And scorpions are stinging. It's to endure. Then certainly your command to us now, today, is to endure. I pray for people who don't feel like going on. That they would continue. I pray for the broken record of forgiven sin to quit playing in people's minds. I pray, Father, for your grace to flow and cover and that we would recognize your sovereign control over our lives. The Antichrist Satan himself. We've seen you more clearly because of the one who's tried to imitate you. Thank you, Jesus. Your death and resurrection make this prayer possible. In your name we pray. Amen.